Driving it home with Patty Vasquez, Patty Vasquez. From global conflicts to greenhouse gases, the folks refusing to wear masks says, and politicians getting caught grabbing asses says, she's driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Good afternoon, good evening, good day. This is Dan Katowski. Sitting in for the illustrious uh, and amazing Patty Vasquez um, for driving home with uh, Patty Vasquez. So I'm, I'm here for the next couple hours, whether you want me or not. So it's great to be here with Lady B. Lady B, good to see you. I want to get right into it. Um, we got a great show today. We got a great show. We have uh, Senator Ron Villivalum, uh from uh, uh, who serves in the Illinois General Assembly. He's going to be our first guest. And then we have uh, Mayor Daniel Biss from Evanston. And then we have uh, Tom Vanderbilt. Who's the founder of GPAC, uh, the, one of the first, the state's first uh, gun safety political pack, and uh, and so I got a great show. So I'm super excited uh, to have uh, uh, Senator Billy Valamont. First, I'm going to give you a little a little uh, a little bio of him, which you should hear because it's super impressive. He's uh, he's raised in the northwest side of Chicago. Uh, he's the son of Indian immigrants. Uh, he's prior, prior to being sworn in the Illinois Senate. He spent four years advocating on behalf of home care for seniors and people with disabilities, child care for working families, Medicaid for those in need. He's honored to be an effective, proactive, and progressive voice for people of the 8th District. He has and will continue to be focused on issues such as income inequality, reducing gun violence, providing a quality education to children regardless of the zip code they reside in, and advancing immigrant LGBTQ and women's rights. Additionally, he is proud to be the first Asian American elected to the Illinois State Senate and the first Indian American elected to the Illinois General Assembly. Senator Billy Vallum, how are you? I'm doing well, Dan. How are you? How's everything going? Things are great. Things are great. It's uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate the fact you took time uh, to be on today, and and just uh, it's it's wonderful to have you. So uh, so tell me, how goes the fight? It's going really well. It's going really well. We had a we had a jam packed early uh, January session, uh, you know, with uh, legislation as as you know uh, to to ban assault weapons, high capacity magazines, uh, make our state even more um, uh, uh, prepared and welcoming in terms of reproductive health care um, and a number of different items, and obviously that just led that led us right into. Um, inauguration, you know, where I was uh, sworn into my second term, the governor was as well, and, and many others. And I think we're we're already, uh, um, you know, getting ready for spring session, and, and bills are being filed, and we're we're ready to go. So, what's different now uh, in the the general sum? We've we've seen a lot of progress, thankfully, due to the advocacy of uh, people like yourself. What's different now that we're making progress? whether it be on uh, gun safety or protecting reproductive uh, health care rights, what, what's different? Why are we making so much progress right now? I, I have to say that it's been the combination of uh, tenacious advocacy on behalf of, uh, um, you know, the people in, in, in all of our districts um, going down to Springfield, talking to their legislators, talking to them in their district offices, um, that tenacious advocacy has led to some of this monumental uh, policy changes we've seen, progressive policy changes uh, we've seen. And it's also been because we have the most uh, diverse Illinois General Assembly we've ever had. Mm-hmm. We had pe- we've had people step up from different communities, 
uh, different backgrounds, and people that are younger, people that are even more experienced in some ways. And I got to tell you, it's it's that right balance of those that have institutional knowledge of what we've done in the past, what worked, what didn't, and also new folks that are ready to take on uh, the tough issues, take what what was once considered, you know, a tough vote and go out there and have the energy and wherewithal to explain to their constituents. Uh, And so I think that that balance of institutional knowledge and new folks, um, you know, I came in in 2019. um, I have, in terms of seniority, I'm number 16 or 17 in the Illinois Senate uh, Democratic Caucus out of 40 members. So that's only four years I'm in, and and I'm, I'm, I'm already... Uh, ahead of 24 people. So I think that tells you right there that we we have a lot of new faces and we're able to mix it with people that have been here and they're able to tell us, hey, we tried that, it worked well, we tried that, it didn't, so let's not do it again. Mm-hmm. That's good. It's good to have a, a balance of uh, perspectives and um, people who are um, essentially been elected to office who have a variety of experiences. And because uh, I, you know, as you know, having served and been in that role before and when you're around and people it's great when you have people who've who've had an extensive background and and been down in Springfield for a long long time but when you have too many people like that it's you know they're not willing to embrace uh, new ideas innovative ideas impactful ones and it takes longer at times than it should so it sounds to me what I hear you saying is there's there's a better balance right now at this stage in terms of progress that's been made that's exactly right. I think. Look, you look at you look at the tenure of folks. It's what you just said, and I said earlier. If you look at the diversity, you know, we have um, a growing um, a Black Caucus, Latino Caucus. Um, we have a historic uh, number in terms of Asian American uh, legislators. Now, um, we also continue to have people that are that are uh, from downstate, Central Illinois that of all backgrounds that are coming in and um, that have their unique perspectives that, that they bring to the table. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited about the diversity of the Illinois General Assembly. And I think on both sides, quite frankly, uh, our voters are respecting us more for telling them the blunt truth of where we are, mm. whether it's fiscally related in terms of property taxes and pensions, uh, whether it's... Um, uh, as it relates to reproductive health and, and gun safety, um, they just they just want the truth. They want to know where we are. And, you know, uh, I also give the example of I'm chair of transportation in the Senate. Um, you know, I, I told people in 2019 we have a D minus rating for our, our, uh, by the American Society of Civil Engineers for our roads, bridges and mass transit. It's that's not going to change unless we fund it. And we need to fund it um, through taxes and fees and. Through that, we have to deliver. We have to we have to make sure that we're, we improve from that D minus rating to make our transportation infrastructure system uh, more uh, you know safe, accessible, affordable, uh, equitable, and um, and and that's you know just me being the you know me saying the honest truth. Like if we don't fund it, it's not going to change, and it's only going to get worse. So so what are the couple of things? What would, what's been your biggest surprise so far? Uh, since you've been in office, and then but on the converse, like what's what's been your biggest challenge? I think I'll start in the reverse. The biggest challenge is 
and and will continue to be right reaching constituents. You know, I you know, I represent close to two hundred fifteen thousand, as you're well aware, and 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 you knocked on doors tenaciously, and I I tried to do that as well, uh, make phone calls, hold town hall meetings, send out mailers in seven different languages. Um, the reality is, you know, in my first election, uh, general election, um, about fifty thousand people voted. You know, out of the two hundred and seventeen thousand that I represented, granted, not all of them are citizens and, and they're able to vote. But the point is, you know, um, my greatest challenge is I'm best at doing my job when I know what people in the district um, are voicing, what their concerns are. And the concern is that I'm only hearing from a segment. And for me, that's not enough. You know, we need to make sure uh, we're hearing from those that are underserved, from those that maybe be that maybe they were apathetic 10 years ago because politics was a certain way, but I want to re-engage them, right? So um, that's the biggest challenge. I think the biggest surprise is that um, it's not as, it's not as uh, uh, like a blood sport as people think it is. You know, mm. I, 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 I joke, you know, we, we actually get along. Um, you know, we, 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 uh, we work on bills, you know, 80 to 90% of our bills are unanimous and bipartisan you know, in Springfield and, um, no one changes their principles. No one, you know, doesn't become a Democrat or a Republican, but we work together. You know, I had a leg- I had a piece of legislation. I'll never forget. It was regarding, um, uh, the certification of getting a service service animal, um, uh, to be able to be in your apartment that you're renting. And, and the housing folks were saying it's too easy for folks are just printing off something online. And then the, the people with disabilities, um, they were saying, well, it can't be too cumbersome because that means it's harder for us, right? Mm. Someone, a person with disability. And so I think I had three or four amendments on the legislation um, and it passed unanimously, right? And so uh, we, we worked together to, to solve some of these issues and uh, no one's compromising who they are, but there is a way to get to an agreement. Um, unfortunately, that's not what's on the front page of the Chicago Tribune or Chicago Times or, or, or other news outlets, right? Because they cover that last 10%, that 10% that there is a partisan difference principally. And um, maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. I don't know. But uh, I do think that, you know, um, it was a little surprising for me how easy it is to have a conversation, um, you know, as a progressive with a moderate or conservative to say, hey, on this issue, you may not be with me, but how about this issue and, and kind of work it out? Yeah, that's it's sort of like I was I was having a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago and they're like, well, just, you know, they're just saying, well, you know, these politicians, they just don't agree with each other and they're all corrupt and a lot of other stuff. And I was like, well, it's not true. <laughs> just not true yeah. you know you can work with people and uh and you find points of common interest and and you know the vast majority of people who are in public office like yourself are good people and they're doing it for the right reasons and you know it's hard to counter that narrative and as you're saying that's a the surprise that you're talking about that surprise you go there and people are willing to work with you and then you said but i'm willing to work with somebody i get something done and then consequently it's hard not to uh get a little deflated at times because you're like, well, why are you talking about that when we got 90% of what we're trying to do? For example, with the assault weapons ban um, and uh, the, the restrictions on high capacity ammunition magazines, 
that is a signature achievement uh, in uh, in terms of legislative history in Illinois when it comes to gun safety reform. And you you're one of the uh, the loudest and most effective uh, advocates on that front. Uh, as it relates to making sure that that bill and other bills get passed. And you are uh, a, a tremendous uh, supporter for people who are survivors and who want to make sure they're, you know, that the legacy of those they've lost are, is, uh, is maintained and they honored uh, the people who've lost their lives to violence and that. And you've, you've listened to folks who are want to do what's best when it comes to public safety. So, um, I mean, I just think, I mean, it's a, it's a tribute to you and your leadership and what you've seen, but like, that doesn't make for good copy, right? At times that you've been out there and that this legislation, bad. what's making for good copy right now is the fact that you have a bunch of sheriffs saying they're not going to follow the law, right? And, and the lawsuits that are filed, uh, as opposed to the signature achievement, um, that it is. So how do you, how do you balance that as a legislator? Is balance somebody who's like working to pass something, got it done, uh, it's, you know, it's something that's going to make a difference in people's lives. And then what the media narrative is about the impact of the actual uh, legislation that was passed. Well, it's, I think it starts with, you know, it's, it's a little sobering, but the realization that I had to come to early on, right, is, you know, any, any vote you take in any position you take as a legislator, you have to come to grips with the fact that, Automatically, 20 to 30 percent of residents, voters, um, you know, people in your districts, um, they, they will likely disagree. And, and that's just the nature of taking policy positions publicly on issues. And the other 70 percent, you know, if, if you're voting in, in line and you're sponsoring legislation in line with your district, um, you know, will agree with you. And I think, you know, I think that's a because at, at, at the end of the day, you know, we all have this natural, um, you know, uh, humane instinct to, hey, how, is there a way for everyone to, you know, work together and be happy? And that's always <laughs> the, the goal. But in reality, there's not because, you know, we're trying to work on policy that impacts 12.6 million people. Um, and, and that's, you know, by definition, we're not going to make everybody happy. So I think, you know, that was a process for me because I, you know, definitely want to try to address everyone's concerns. Um, but that's just, you know, a process that, that I think we went through and we, people are going to continue to go through uh, as part of the Illinois General Assembly. I think the other piece is, you know, the, 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 the question, right, is is this change that is being proposed by a colleague or um, a mom demanding action or an Illinois sheriff um, or state's attorney, whoever they may be, is it reasonable? Is it practical, Right. And, and if, if it passes that test without losing votes on the legislation, um, then it should be considered, right? And I, I know that we passed monumental historic legislation in banning assault weapons. Um, and, and let me just say that, you know, you led on it for several years before me. Senator President Harmon, you know, um, has, has sponsored the legislation. And, and really, I think if you poll the general public, no one wants these weapons of war, right, on our streets and, right. and in our communities. And, and so there's also a difference between public opinion and opinions in the legislature, 
Right. Yeah, real quickly. So we're going to take a uh, sorry, but I'm going to interrupt you. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to bring you back on. We have to have a commercial break, and we're sponsored by Monaco Brewing Company. And just wanted to put that out there, remind everybody our supporters. And if you want to call in, it's seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. We have Senator Ram Vilivalam on with us right now. Uh, we'll be coming back in a, in a couple minutes. Tom Hartman. Look at what happened to the gas prices in the three months leading up to the election. This this is, in my mind, proof positive that the CEOs of the fossil fuel industry, who hate Democrats and hate Biden, wanted to bring down the Democratic Party, and so they jacked up the price of gasoline. And, you know, I'm expecting that they'll do the same thing in two years of 2024. The Tom Hartman Radio Program, weekdays 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. Hello, Dan Dan Katowski back here again, uh, filling in for uh, Patty Vasquez. We're driving home with uh, Patty Vasquez, and I have Senator Rob Villivalum from the 8th District on with us, and it's been great to hear you and talk to you, and and so you were just kind of finishing some thoughts, but I wanted to hear in the time that we have up left uh, with us, is what are what are some of the top items that are on your agenda, or the most important items on your agenda in the upcoming legislative session? Well, I can definitely tell you priority number one is going to be passing uh, comprehensive paid family and medical leave. Um, you know, we have we have made significant strides in this state to be uh, pro-worker. We just passed a you know uh, a workers' rights amendment uh, on the November uh, ballot from from last year. Uh, we just passed paid sick leave. Um, you know, in the uh, early January session. Uh, however, we're 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 uh, you know, 12 states have passed paid family and medical leave We in the District of Columbia. Uh, we need to be 13. And, um, the again, this is one of those issues where there's incredibly broad support. 79% of voters, including 67% of Republicans, 77% of Indi- uh, independents, and uh, 93% of Democrats uh, support a permanent paid family and medical leave program. Uh, we know that um, it's needed. We, we know that uh, people uh, deserve certainty. Uh, and we also know that uh, companies are already doing this. You know, the large companies um, know that this is an attractive benefit and it helps with job retention. And so uh, we're, we're introducing a, a, a bill that would welcome, you know, if you welcome a new child into your home uh, to maintain a healthy pregnancy, uh, family member's illness, so many other reasons. Um that uh, you will have uh, paid family and, and medical leave, and so I'm, um, you know, currently working on that. And you know, there's other. So where would the funding source of that come from? Because you know, was we we at our organization at uh, the Kids Above All last year, we were able to secure a grant, thankfully, to pay for uh, paid parental leave. Right, not the entire. Uh, people are still able to get family leave, but it's not paid for. Entirely right, um, and so how do we make sure that that, that it's something that is um, that the, the, where what's the source of the funding so we can do that because I think organizations all out there uh, want to do it um, and it's important 
You know, we've had people I know who work at our, our workforce have been desperately ill and had to take so much time off. And there's only a certain amount that's covered, right? Uh, and so, how do we how do we ensure that that there's a, there's the funding that's directed towards that and that that it becomes reality? Because this is a wonderful it's a wonderful initiative that you're working on. Thank you. And and I would say it, it, it has to, um, you know, different states do it in different ways, but essentially it's a combination of coming. It comes from uh, the employers and the employees. Um, this is, again, about uh, employers being able to offer a benefit to retain people. Like if, if you talk to employers, one of the, I think the top issue they would say is workforce, finding people to do the jobs that they have available. And, and part of recruitment is being able to offer a benefit like this. In the same token, people that are working these jobs, they want to be able to have certainty. They want to know that um, they're able to take off, you know, a paid leave off to be able to take care of their child or a family member uh, and know that they have a job that's waiting for them when uh, they, their leave ends. And so I think it's a win-win situation. Uh, it's far past time. And uh, I think that, you know, essentially the, the, the shared notion of the cost um, is, is what we're looking at. That's how other states do it uh, with, you know, with some differences. But, you know, I think it's something we can definitely do. And we have to work with the administration and make sure that they're able to um, help implement this program, um, something that, that's massive. Yeah, that's terrific. I'd say, you know, because I know the impact, I've seen the impact of, of paid parental leave. Uh, and and how we a lot many many of the the women on our team who had children how they were able to get that um, that that time off and get it paid and uh, and it was such a relief for them as well as the the, uh, the fathers of children were able to get that time off too and and also for people who are adopting uh, children so but you're talking about a whole other area too for I think for sickness is so important and making sure there's so many people in our state who are taking care of their family members uh, who are ill and struggling uh, with health. So really appreciate your leadership on the front. So that sounds like that's a big issue right there. What's what's your next what's next item on the agenda? Well, we're certainly looking at the uh, at education funding. You know, in 2017, we uh, we revamped um, you know our education funding formula to basically put in more from the state, right? As, and as you know, you know we've been funding education is funded from local property taxes, and we're we were 45th in funding education from the state. Uh, we had to change that. We had to change it so that. You, you know, the quality of education isn't based upon where you live uh, because of, um, you know, the, the funding from property taxes. Um, it's based on, you know, per pupil, per student, right? They should deserve, they deserve, you know, a quality education no matter what zip code. And also, eventually, it'll it'll lead to property tax relief down the line. So we've been pumping in $350 million more a year uh, from the state for the last five years. The challenge is that, you know, we still are modernizing the curriculum. You know, we, we passed the TEACH Act, the first unit of Asian American history, um, the first state to pass uh, that uh, unit of Asian American history be taught in our schools. Um, we have legislation regarding personal health and safety education. Uh, and as we look at in, um, in, including those um, you know, units in our curriculum, we have to look at the fact that it's going to cost more dollars and it's, um, you know, uh, in order to implement it right, it's going to require more personnel. And so I'm going to largely look at, you know, how we can better fund our schools 
um, to ensure that, um, you know, we're, we're, they're able to do what we're asking them to do uh, in terms of some of these uh, issues. Another example is I have legislation um, to provide halal and kosher food options for our students in schools, right? And again, great idea. It should be done. It's about religious, uh, you know, acknowledging religious freedom. And uh, at the same time, we have to be able to pay for it, right? We have to be able to make sure that our schools uh, have the ability to do so. So that's education is going to be top of mind at going into this session, uh, specifically funding and making sure they have the, the tools and the toolbox to do the things that we're asking them to do. Yeah, that's excellent. Sounds like a ambitious but important and impactful agenda. And uh, really appreciate uh, your leadership uh, on that front. And um, so, what's uh, what's one of the things I always ask people that and I, I got just uh, about forty seconds to go with you here is like what what you, what do you, would you tell people? What would you tell people in terms of your constituents out there? What if if they want the type of government that they they often discuss? What what should they be doing? Please contact me. It's, it's, it's that easy. If you contact my office via email, um, call, text message, uh, I have an Instagram account. I'm not sure exactly how to use it, uh, but my <laughs> staff is, uh, is a lot younger than I am. Uh, and they, and they, uh, they know how to access it and, and make sure I'm getting those messages. Um, at, at the end of the day, we're, we're all better when we hear from our constituents. And um, it, it is, so, and we do read the emails, we do read the text messages, because that's what, uh, that's our job. That's what we need to do. And so um, don't think that we're sitting in some office, you know, doing, um, you know, just making decisions by ourselves. We are absolutely counting on our constituents for their opinions and, um, you know, how they're urging us to vote and so forth. So please get involved. Someone once said to me, well, I can, I can have my group send you 500 emails. Is that too much? And I said, no, I'll, re- I'll read them all, you know, because it's, it's that important that we hear from people. Terrific. And uh, thank you so much, Senator Ron Villivalum. Uh, and, and those of you listening, this is why we should be optimistic about our state, because people like him and, and so many others are in office, but he's been doing terrific work, cares about his constituents, he's focused on the right thing, and he understands that the most important people are, are those that he represents, and, he, and he's doing an excellent job. So thanks so much for uh, being on the show uh, today, uh, Senator Villavalum. It's great to hear you and appreciate you and your leadership. And, and your service. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Take care. So it was great. So we're, we're going to go out to commercial, but just again, we have 773-763-9278 WCPT. Please uh, call. Again, we're sponsored by uh, Camp Kupagani. Did I get that right? Camp Kupagani. And, uh, and so we'll come back after a commercial. From energy to public health, extreme weather, the economy, and more. Climate Connections makes the global local. Hear it weekdays during the Tom Hartman program and during Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Can't call into the show? Now you can text Patty at the same number you used to call us. 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupu Gani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. 773-763-9278. Dan Katowski back on uh, driving home with Patty Vasquez and... 
So we, it was great to have uh, Senator Ron Villavalam on the uh, on the show. And our next guest is the mayor of Evanston, Daniel Biss, and I'm really excited to have him on. Real quickly, I think we have a phone call uh, just here from Judy from Niles before we have Senator Biss on, or actually Mayor Biss. <laughs> Judy, how are you? Hi, how are you? Good. What's up? I remember way, way back when you used to be on when you were still a senator, you were so much more serious. <laughs> <laughs> you are a lot funnier. <laughs> tell my wife that. Would you tell my wife that I'm funnier? Please do. <laughs> is your wife the wife that always hastens to tell everyone she isn't Polish? <laughs> yeah. No, that's my mom. My mom reminds everybody she's not Polish. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, because my, my husband is. <laughs> oh, what, wonderful. He's trying to talk to me, you know. All, all of a sudden, he'll be chatting away to me in Polish and I'm, uh, I can't understand you. I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> it's hysterical. So, what do you got, Judy? What do you have for me? Well, I he is my uh, rum is my. He was at my front stoop, and I sent him next door to my neighbors. I said, "Why don't you go talk to them?" Because I know he has had a set amount of addresses where where he would be welcomed. I guess. He walked his little shoes off, I'm sure. <laughs> he did. He it's did. It's long out here. Yes, it is. It do is. You live, do, you, do you live in the, in the Niles area or not necessarily in that? Me? Did I used to? I, I, I had Niles. I represented part of Niles, but I live in the uh, Park Ridge area. So been there for oh, about 20 da. years. Yeah. <laughs> Lottie, uh, listen to you. I'm right near the airport. <laughs> I'm right near oh. the airport. Oh, low-flying planes. <laughs> yeah, I got, that's okay. I love where I'm at. I love where I live. Well, it's good to, good to talk to you, Judy. Thanks for calling. Really appreciate you. Uh, yeah, well, I, if you, if, I'm hoping to get our uh, people who are running in Niles on there, too, if I can get a hold of them. Okay. We're having a library problem over here. Okay. All right. Okay, thanks, a thanks so much. Nice Take care. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Now we have, uh, thanks so much, and uh, we got uh, Mayor Daniel Biss, who's on the line. He's the mayor of Evanston. He began his career as a mathematics professor at the University of Chicago for becoming an organizer, then elected official, served as a member of the Illinois House and Senate for eight years. His public service consistently featured cutting-edge initiatives to advance social, racial, economic justice, and political reform. Uh, Daniel lives with his wife, Karen, and he teaches, who teaches, humanity and social science at National Lewis University, and the two children. Mayor Biss, Daniel Biss, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Dan? Good, good. Thanks so much for being on the show. Appreciate it. No, I've always felt like uh, being a radio host was your true calling. I was just waiting for this moment. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Thank you for thank you for indulging. Everyone has a little bit of a dream. It's a quiet dream, and and I don't know if this one will become to, come to a roar. But it's uh, it's great to hear your voice. Uh, appreciate the fact that you've continued to be in public service and in your roles. I, I, had the, I had the honor of serving with you when you were in the Senate. You did a lot of tremendous work. Good work there in public service. So what what's it like uh, being a mayor? And and what 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 are your agenda items that you're focusing on? I you know, I ran into you recently, and you were talking a little about your role. But I think it's you know it's important. You've made this transition. You're in you're in Springfield, but now you're doing local government work. So what's it what's it been like for you? You know, it's really different. I mean, I love I love it, um, and I've learned a ton. Because it's so different from state government service, you know, when we were when we were in the Senate together, we're working on, you know, high level policy issues. And obviously, you know, 
that it affects people's lives. That's why you do it. But, you know, the, the words on the page can sometimes feel removed from day-to-day life. And, you know, when you're, when you're in local government, it's, it's about the dispute between neighbors. It's about making sure the streets are plowed. It's, it's about um, all of these things that affect everybody every day and that everybody has really deep attachment to. But at the same time, we also get to work on high-level policy ideas. So, like, for example... Uh, the city of Evanston has stood up a, a guaranteed income program where 150 low-income families are being given a monthly $500 check to help them stay on their feet and, you know, hopefully find employment and, and otherwise make it through these difficult times. We, we in the last year, um, initiated the first uh, municipal reparations program of any city in the country. Uh, so we're really kind of blazing trails there and, and there's cities across the country kind of looking to us to figure out how to how to set something similar up and so yeah, it's a really really so talk more about that what's how's how's that been executed how's that been received when because uh, um, that it that's not something that's been happening it's been people talked about but no one's actually really fully like moved forward the way evanston has and 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 made progress on the front so don't talk about the, the challenge of that and the execution of that i think it's very interesting for people they would to hear about it. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, look, look, there's no question. It's always a little scary to go first. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had to just be willing to say this is going to be tough and it's not going to always be simple, but it's too important to, to just sit back and wait for someone else to do. So uh, the city has committed the first $10 million that are going to come in through uh, cannabis sales tax uh, to the reparations fund. We've also more recently committed over the course of a decade, $10 million of real estate transfer tax money to go to the reparations fund. And the, the, how the funds are allocated is going to um, evolve over time. But the first chunk of it is specifically for housing assistance to individuals who were living in Evanston during the time of documented discrimination and are still in Evanston, African-American Evanstonians, as well as their descendants, because really the fundamental wrong that we are trying to correct here is that the city itself was active in enforcing segregation and keeping Evanston segregated, which of course had all kinds of very serious effects in terms of the, the ability of black families to, to build wealth and contributed to the uh, the uh, wealth gap that we see today. And so we're, we're trying to, to take steps to reverse that in part because we know it was partially our fault. Mm. Yeah, that acceptance of responsibility. And I think oftentimes people have a difficult time with that. And they'll say, well, I wasn't around when that happened, right? So why should I take responsibility? And I'm sure you encountered some people and say, well, why are we doing something right now that we weren't a part of? Right. And so yeah. how did you answer that? Yeah, no, it's, it's a this is a really kind of um, tough and, and emotional issue on all sides. And, and the way I answer that is I'm not blaming you personally. I'm not blaming anyone personally. What I'm saying is the city is an organization and it's a documented fact of history that we did these things. And in doing so, we incurred a debt no different than a corporation. Right. If If a corporation incurred a debt 50 years ago, that's on the hook of today's shareholders to pay it off. And this is, unfortunately, a, a similar situation. Mm, mm. Yeah, and it's it's so... I don't think often... Uh, 
Mayor, when people have these conversations, because they're difficult ones and they're uncomfortable yeah, ones they for people, and particularly people who are, are white, you know, because um, and I think all around, but it's 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 challenging because I think well, people have a tough time being uncomfortable, and they have a tough time when they think they're they're uh, being singled out. When in fact, you're saying we're not talking; we're talking about the city. The city has a responsibility. And as people who are part of this city, who live in this city, who benefit from the city, uh, we have a role to play, uh, ensuring that we're righting a wrong, right? A fundamental, fundamental wrong. So it's, uh, you know, appreciate you and your leadership and, and, and that of the city council of, uh, of Evanston for, you know, taking the lead on this front because it's, I think the more, the more time, right? Wouldn't you agree? More time people, take to have these conversations which are difficult, which are uncomfortable, but which really get people to say that, you know, here's what you need to understand. This is something that the government, (laughs) the government basically administered and the government allowed to happen. So, um, so what do you, you see in housing, do you see it any other ways in which you could provide um, where that fund goes towards anything other than housing, like education or human services or, um, you have support for, you know, vocational training. Where where do you see this going? And you just, do you target? I do, I do, and I'll yeah, no, for sure. And I'll, I'll answer that in a second. But I I, I want to just kind of react to what you you said because I think you said something really important. These conversations are uncomfortable. We know that, and they're un- uncomfortable in part because they can feel like they're about personalizing an accusation, and then people feel like they got to defend themselves. Right, and I think. I think what's so important is to say this is not about pointing the finger at one specific person. This is about just acknowledging the very basic fact that the system itself has been unfair for a long time. And the only evidence you need for that is today's outcome, the black-white longevity gap, life expectancy gap today, the black-white income or wealth gap today, the black-white educational outcomes gap today. That says we've got a system that's been unfair for a long time, and it's not about saying – you know, Dan Katowski is the person who made it happen. It's about all of us will be better off when we come together to fix the problem. Isn't it um, interesting? Because when you say, like you would say, like right now, we're making decisions uh, in the federal level immediately about uh, investing in a, in a conflict that's, you know, in another part of the world. And we're writing massive checks Massive checks. Yep. And, and, and it isn't to say whether or not we should be doing it or not, but those checks are written without a great degree of scrutiny or evaluation in terms of um, outcomes related to it. It's not the same level. And it's, it's very interesting. I used to say comparing Springfield to local municipality and like you get the number of people showing up for a smaller amount of money compared to voting for a tax increase that's like six or seven billion. You'd have 40 people in a room. And if you're advocating for, for 10 billion, you may have several hundred people show up at a, at a hearing. So I can imagine that that was... Uh, um, um, just getting people, you know, this because it's a higher level of focus uh, on a municipal level, and I don't think people have a an appreciation for that. And so, um, I don't know. I was just kind of thinking about like the juxtaposition between how money is spent on issues that we don't feel like we don't have as much control over, or as much impact, but but it's still a colossal amount of money compared to how much. What would it take in order to invest and in, to begin righting this wrong? 
Yeah, no, that's 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 absolutely right. But I, I think it also it also makes sense. I mean, yeah, from a from a pure arithmetic perspective, sometimes these numbers people get worked up about smaller numbers, but but they're emotional issues. You know, yeah. the question of of reparations and and racism and and kind of what's happened in the past. When people think, you know, when, when you talk to African American Evansonians and they tell you about what their grandparents had to go through. That, that's a very deeply emotional issue, and and it, even if the dollar number attached to it is five bucks, it it doesn't change just how intensely people feel that, and how how people have a I think a, a righteous demand that their dignity be respected. Um, so it's you know th- th- I don't I'm not surprised this issue is tough and emotional. I think that's just that's just um, inevitable given given the subject matter. Yeah, you bring up something that's interesting, right? Because it's not just uh, for the, for people who've been impacted by systemic uh, racism and injustice. For them, it's not just about uh, it's just not about a, a dollar amount. It's about an acknowledgement and an acceptance of the fact that it happened, and that you know because it's it's a combination of the two, right? Because um, most people would say, like, right. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you about to say? No, I mean, so I I um, uh, I don't talk about this that often because I you know don't want to make this about me, but but I, but well here we are. <laughs> I guess I will. Um, my my grandparents, my mother's parents, were Holocaust survivors, and they received reparations from the German government. And you know they were very clear. I mean, my they they lost between the two of them all four of their parents. They understood that money wasn't going to bring their parents back. They understood that money was less important than what they lost. But they also felt that it was really important to them to hear the government that had done this acknowledge that it had a responsibility to do what it could to make things right. That meant something to them, even if they knew that, you know, there was no amount of money they would willfully trade for not being able to see their parents again. But at least somebody was saying, this is unacceptable. This is wrong. We we have a responsibility to somehow find a way to do what we can to do right by you. Yes. Hey, listen, we're going to take a thank you uh, for that. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with Mayor Daniel Biss, the mayor of Evanston. Uh, this has been a great conversation. And and uh, and if those of you want to call in, you can call at 773-763-9278. Again, uh, we're sponsored by the Monaco Brewing Company, Camp Kupagani. And um, so uh, thank you for all the, the endorsers and sponsors. We'll be coming back in just a minute or so. I've- because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Patty Vasquez is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez now on WCPT 820. Dan Katowski back here um, filling in for Patty Vasquez and driving it home with Patty Vasquez and my um, guest here, um, Mayor Daniel Biss from Evanston. We were just talking about the steps that um, Evanston has taken uh, to address uh, in a um, significant way um, these right the, these wrongs that have occurred in the past, and and to uh, make sure we're confronting the injustice passed by through reparations. And appreciate that. And I don't know if you had any thoughts while we went to break, uh, any things that we'd missed in terms of this conversation, but. 
I can probably tell you this type of conversation isn't really necessarily happening throughout the country because there are very few municipalities that have moved forward on this. So what else is, uh, I mean, you've been doing, what are some of the other priorities that you've been uh, seeking to address uh, in your in your role as mayor uh, via, the, via the council and, and in conjunction with your constituents? Well, you know, um, environmental issues and climate change are really important to us. Uh, we have an ambitious climate action and resilience plan, and um, that's a really, really far-reaching bunch of goals uh, around carbon emissions and waste and transportation and so forth. And, and so we're working towards that. That takes a there's a lot of, a lot of work to be done there, and that's something where we just keep shipping away every year. Affordable housing is a big issue for us. You know, we're, we're lucky enough that lots of people want to come here. That drives up demand for housing, and that drives up the price. And then all of a sudden, people are having trouble affording to stay here. And so find it, figuring out a way to uh, maintain our economic, not to mention racial diversity, and to, to make evidence in the place that people who want to be able to afford to stay can, in fact, afford to stay. And people who want to be able to afford to move here can afford to move here is a a huge priority. So those are some of the things that we spend a, a lot of our time really, really focusing on. Yeah, it's terrific. So what's of of all the you know things that have happened? What's been what's been your biggest challenge so far in this new role? What's something that's your the one thing you know, this is this is a this is your obstacle. This is something uh, that you're working on. That you're like, well, this is going to be this is going to be my 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 hill that I got to climb. What is it so far? Well, you know, I. Um I took office with a bunch of ideas, you know, things that we could do on racial justice and climate and economic justice and affordable housing and political reform, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I don't think I'd been in office for even six weeks when I found out about a absolutely horrifying uh, sexual misconduct scandal among Evanston Lakefront employees that had essentially been, um, you know, I don't know what the right word is exactly, but that the, uh, the the previous administration had just kind of not brought to light. And so so that was itself horrifying, and, and we really had to do a lot of reform to make sure that, that would never happen again. But it also set off this domino effect where people, uh, some people were terminated, some people left. There was a ton of turmoil and turnover. And so we realized there was an enormous amount of culture change that had to happen internally. And then we were doing it while we were trying to figure out how to fill these positions. And and it, it's left me with a much greater appreciation for the difficulty of change management. That mm. You know, having one guy with the title of mayor with an opinion doesn't get you very far unless you have a team who are all aligned on values. Mm-hmm. And align on values in this context means accountability. It means we can't have an organization where some people feel unsafe or some people feel disrespected or some people feel like their opinion doesn't matter. And then when they bring that accusation, they get ignored or dismissed. And, and so, so I think we've made unbelievable strides in building the type of organization that reflects the values of our community. But there's still work left to be done. And, and it's it's meant that as much other stuff as I'm proud that we've accomplished, quite frankly, progress on some of those big ideas I came into office with has been slower than it otherwise would have been because you can't do that work unless until you have an organization where um, 
you know, where everybody is respected and valued and treated with dignity. And then you can have the kind of effective team that's able to put in place the kind of uh, big ideas that I was elected to implement. So what was the biggest, like that? that's the biggest challenge. What was the biggest surprise where you came in and somebody brought a, 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 an item before you that you needed to work on and you were surprised You're like really i mean this is what's happening and this is this is a challenge like because like, you know when you have this idea this concept of being a mayor and uh i know there were things that we were caught us by surprise when we were uh in springfield They're like really the, people don't know this or this is the initiative that we're working on and what was the what was the big surprise moment so far were you with you and your job you know it's just always surprising how much of a spotlight and a microscope there is on local government. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I just, you know, I remember in Springfield, we would just, you know, I used to tell people all the time, you know, people would get all worried about what are the political ramifications of this or that. And I would just say, just do the right thing. No one's watching you anyway. <laughs> and of course, I still believe people should just do the right thing. But let me tell you, in local government, they're watching you. Yeah. And we can have, you know, like you said earlier, <laughs> we can have, you know, like 40 people show up to a, to a city council meeting to weigh in on a particular proposed development or, you know, a, a, a kind of issue that might, that to be honest, Dan, before I was mayor, I wouldn't even have noticed these issues at all. Right. Much less right. felt strongly enough to, to show up and speak against them. But, but, you know, the beauty of having an engaged community is that folks turn out and folks turn up and, and, and it, it means ultimately that I'm not, you know, in, when we were in Springfield, we would go to Springfield and come back, you know, at the end of the session or at the end of the term and say, hey, here's what I accomplished. I hope you liked it. If so, you should vote me back in. If not, pick somebody else. In local government, you never leave. So it's not so much that you go off and do the job and then report back. It's that you're the one convening the conversation where the community decides what they want. Right. right. That's just a, a new and, and different uh, form of leadership. And, you know, it's fun. I love it. Um, but I've, I've really had to learn how to do it properly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That makes that makes sense. I mean, it's it's one of the things that's so much harder. Uh, I'm not it's much harder just to have a, a life separate and distinct from it because you're there, you're doing the work and you're out in the community. And uh, it's not like you're representing multiple communities where you would go in another part of the district and someone may not recognize who you are. I mean, I only, I, I remember this, we, uh, my, my wife sent me to a, a local a park to park Ridge hearing and she said, you should just go and testify. And, um, <laughs> and I was out knocking on doors in, in that neighborhood and, and I went there and it was just about putting a playground up in front of this, uh, this church. And there were all these people opposed to the playground because they thought uh, it would lead to ne'er-do-wells hanging out, smoking cigarettes and, you know, all sorts of hijinks, whatever. But it was a massive number of people came to oppose it. And I was like, this is amazing. It was just about a playground. And uh, so people are very attuned to what's going on. It wasn't a huge expenditure of money, but people were very involved and engaged. And consequently, I came home to my, my, my wife. I said, what are you doing to me? I mean, all these people are angry at me because I was in favor of the playground. 
<laughs> I don't want to hear that. Um, so what? What? It's, uh, so in terms of like local government and what you're, uh, what you've been achieving, it sounds like you've had a lot, a real robust agenda, and you've been able to accomplish a fair amount so far. So uh, much appreciation to you and your leadership. And then what? You know, in terms of those folks who are um, reaching out to their elected officials, why well, I was. Uh, seek from someone like you, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, first of all, definitely reach out, you know, know that, that your comments going to be noticed and paid attention to. If you're on the fence, just reach out. And I would say it's really important to strike a balance where you need to be confident and firm, right? That you're, you're reaching out because you're, you're the constituent, you're the resident, you're the expert. You, you have some knowledge or an opinion that, that the elected official needs to hear, but on the other hand, be respectful and polite and know that the elected official also has some knowledge that might be useful for you to learn. Mm. I, I find that if you can strike that balance and be strong and confident and also willing to listen and have a, you know, an exchange that goes both ways, that's the best way to progress. Excellent. Excellent advice. It's been great to have you on uh, today. Uh, Mayor Daniel Biss from Evanston. Uh, appreciate, grateful for everything you do, all your leadership. Thanks for continuing to be in public service and uh, and just thanks for, for being you. So I look forward to seeing you soon and uh, hope to have you on the show again sometime. Hey, thanks so much, Dan. It's great talking with you and uh, I look forward to seeing you very soon. Yeah, you take good care. So we're going to go to uh, uh, another commercial. Looks like we have a couple calls that we can take after this. Please stay on. You know, we got uh, Gregory from Rogers Park. Please stay on. We have somebody else. I don't necessarily see. There's no name there, but we'll, we'll find out. But we'll take a couple calls, and we got the commercials head your way, and we'll return. We got another guest coming on, uh, Tom Vandenberg, who's the, the founder of GPAC. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez, Patty Vasquez. Politicians getting caught grabbing asses. She's driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Dan, Dan Katowski back here. It's tough saying my name there for a second, Lady B. You think I would know how to say it after all this time? Yeah, filling in for Patty Vasquez on driving it home. It's great to just a great to be here. Uh, I don't care what the weather's like. It's just you know, we bring our own weather in here, Lady B. It's nice. It's uh, it's warm. There's a lot of bright lights, so uh, I can't uh, I can't hide how paced I am. But let's just move on from that. But uh, we uh, we had some great guests. The terrific uh, Senator Billy Vallum was was on. It was great to hear everything he's doing. The just the you know paid family medical leave act, support of gun violence prevention, and then Mayor Daniel Biss and everything he's doing on uh, reparations and writing. You know. In just this massive injustice that's occurred in our country, and uh, and then just the fact what he's doing with you know making sure to protect the environment, economic opportunity. So I'm both terrific public servants. We're real blessed to have them in the role, and I'm going to have Sony Tom Vandenberg on later from uh, GPAC, who's done a lot of work in making sure that you know children and families have a chance to uh, have the best life possible. But we have a couple calls I'm going to take right now. We have Gregory from Rogers Park. A little shout-out to RP. Gregory, I grew up in Rogers Park, talking about the Evanston Red Flag Crossing System. So what's up? Well, I do want to just say before I applaud Mayor Biss and his administration on taking a lead on a mundane but serious issue such as being able to cross the street safely, 
that the red flag program that they have implemented, which is spreading around the world in different places, works like a charm. As soon as you touch the little stick with the red flag in the container, they have about 10 intersections where they have this. The motorists stop and they let you cross. If you don't pick up the red flag, they do the backward Chicago thing of not realizing that it's state law and they're required to all come to a stop to provide safe passage for the one pedestrian you might come across on any given trip in Chicagoland. And they expect you to just wait till the coast is clear and then scurry across and try to time the flow of traffic and not get hit and injured or even killed, which is what happens when a car is going 40 miles per hour over half the time. And I had a young... uh, attorney in the wheelchair taxi cab I drive, uh, and he said it took a year and a half to train them to do it in Evanston. So if it took a year and a half to train a highly educated, upper middle class affluent community like Evanston, surely it would take three years in my hometown next door in Chicago. But I would like to enlist Mr. Biss and his administration and the people in Cook County and the mayor of Chicago to implement the red flag crossing system countywide, if not Chicago land wide. It would help civilize the culture and it would help make people take walks, which is heart healthy and environmental, and it would help reduce the amount of injuries and fatalities. So that's what I wanted to ask him about and to ask him to help support my efforts to get that program implemented Cook County wide. I have Tony Preckwinkle who might help me in that regard and uh, the new mayor or the or if Lori Lightfoot gets reelected, we can work with her administration. But For sure. she's a leader in this. And I did want to just wrap up by saying that it's not just the grandparents that suffered these injustices, but my own 90-year-old retired uh, law professor father, when he attended Northwestern University in 1950, he tells me it's hard to believe but he says they would only allow one black student at a time. And when that student became a senior, then they would let another black student come in as a freshman. So in other words, no more than one or two black students at a time during that period of Evanston, of Northwestern University's history in Evanston. Mm. So, and he was part of the journalism department and head of part of the head of his class type guy and couldn't get a job in journalism because of the apartheid in our culture. And so he became a Cook County prosecutor. And then he worked for a black law firm, then a Jewish law firm. Then he became a professor for 45 years. But we are the generations that are the successive generations from the apartheid of American culture that comes out of even slavery. So yeah, he's a leader and he's a great. And so thank you so much. Oh, thank it's you. Not about the, it's not, and I had turned out okay myself because my father, you know, was an upper middle class person and I've, I've, I've had my chances and, and I've done okay. But it's not about the money necessarily at all. It, 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 it's about, although it's about that too, it's equally about resolving the, the pain of the culture that we have and we need to neutralize it by acknowledging it. Yeah, and the opportunity too, like you talked about, it's in. I think it's so. People don't realize uh, how recent everything uh, was and is, and, and, and the impact of that history, and how it that uh, the trauma is generational. And I think people Thank think you. just because, yes. right? I think some of them think, well, no, it's over. No, the, the, the trauma is generational. You don't just. Uh, 
you don't necessarily just forget about it. And oftentimes it's just built into, you know, what people are doing with on a, on a daily basis. There's a remembrance of it. The body keeps the score. The mind keeps the score. The soul keeps the score. And, um, and I think you need an acknowledgement of that. And, and so thank you for calling in, Gregory. Appreciate you. You should run for office. So I, I, I'd get behind you. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. All right, Greg. All right, so looks like we got Jim uh, calling in from Chicago. Jim, how are you? Hi, Dan. How are you? Good. I've been a sing- I've been a single issue voter since I was a kid. I'm 72. Since I was 18, I voted for national health insurance my entire life, and it looks like I won't live to see it. But I did work with the Dominicans. I went to the Dominican College, and the nuns were on the bus for Obamacare. And they were screaming about abortion. They said, well, ignore that. We need health care more than anything. All I can say is I've had uh, circumstances in Europe where I was in emergency rooms in Europe under dire circumstances. No charge, no paperwork, no computer work. Just, you know, I hope we can help you. Uh, my brother was in Iceland. He had an accident there. Uh, going to the, but it was a five-hour charge. I, why are we investing in psychiatry, dentistry, giving? When you think about the the salaries paid to the CEOs and sports figures and so on and so forth, I think the doctors and the nurses should be making big money. And the psychiatrists in every neighborhood should have a physician, a general practitioner to go with the family, you know, for years. When I was a kid, because that, the outcome is 10 times better, Dan. It's yeah. ten times better. Yeah, yeah. And and, and we're, we're we're trying to get there, but uh, come on. I mean, I think we're, I think it's us in Papua New Guinea or somewhere where they don't have it. You know, it's just it's frustrating. You know, I don't know if I live to see it, but I think that's one of the most important issues. Well, you know, person's help. If you got the energy to work and so on and so forth, you got to have that. Well, right. Keep going. What's the number one cause of bankruptcy in our country? Healthcare, healthcare costs, right? It's a, yeah, I mean that's been that's been the case for so long, and like I talked about, it's it's a question of priority in terms of what we're investing in. I mean, if we were investing in healthcare and making it as affordable uh, and um, accessible as it possibly can be, it's just it, it, we'd, we'd save a tremendous amount of money, and we'd save most important a lot of lives, and people would have the yes. more quality of life that they deserve to have, and that's that's the reality, and that's where we should go. It's yes. tough to get elected officials to think about the long term, right, as opposed to the short term. Well, Dan, the, the, the trouble with life is you don't know what circumstance you're going to be in. You could have healthy insurance, real good insurance, or so on, but lose your job, yeah. be on a job temporarily, and have a gallbladder or some other emergency. And you don't have any insurance. Yeah, agreed. So, I mean, this happens all the time in America. I mean, you know, we're just in a miserable state here. I think we're like 33 in the list of different countries for our health outcome. We spend more money on it, but it certainly isn't put the right way. Anyway, Dan, thanks for listening to me. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Jim. Thanks so much for calling in. Yeah, take care. Looks like we got John calling in. Uh, John, how are you? John from Hammond? Yes, yes. Hey, hey John. Yeah, nice to hear your voice. What's going on? Thank, thank you. Well, just a couple of comments. Um, my father, too, you know, as the uh, mayor said, uh, my father got reparations. Um, he was a slave laborer during World War II uh, in Nazi Germany. And uh, until his death, uh, he received a small check from the German government 
uh, for gosh, I'd say at least thirty or forty, thirty-five years. Now it wasn't a, it didn't amount to much, um, but it was like ten dollars. Uh, maybe it was like ten dollars a month. Okay, wasn't very much, but over the years, I guess it did add up. Yeah. So that's yeah. one thing, and that's you know, it was something. Okay. The the other thing I wanted to say was. Um, so one of the problems I see in uh, in the poorest of the African American communities is the notion of citizenship, and I'm talking about I'm not talking I'm talking about the the poorest of the poor and uh, the most uh, the people with the most despair. You might say um, it's almost like okay the schools. So what is the, what is the school producing? You know, ultimately what what do public schools produce? I think. The goal of a public school is to produce good citizens, period. And what does that come with? That comes with opportunities, and it comes with responsibilities. And um, and I, I don't think that's either being taught. I know people talk about civics, but I'm talking about, like, when you get your diploma, you know, you're issued, like, a passport, you know, like, hey, welcome, you're, you're now a full-blown U.S. citizen, you know. And, um, you know, to, I don't know, try to elevate people to realize that, for example, the police now are your police. They they represent you. They work for you. You're paying their salaries, and so um, and then you and then you also look at it as, uh, but I also set the laws. I hire the politicians to write the laws, and so there's a there's an ownership. Right, I don't right. Know if that's either being. You, you know what I'm getting at? I mean, I yeah, you're talking about good understanding of like the civic. It's very empowering once people understand that uh, the people who represent those who live in communities and have jobs, they actually they pay taxes and, 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 and they pay their salaries. And so and it's like when you get out of school. I think that that's such a central part of that education is what you're saying, John, right? You come out of school, the least thing you should know is that you're, you have a civic responsibility to be engaged because, you know, the return on your investment is so key because your taxes pay for the service that you get. They, they pay for, you know, for these, these people in key positions. And I think it's our responsibility to do that. It's, it is a central thing. Other than, I think to me, yeah, I, I differ slightly in the sense that people should leave school and they should have a world-class education. They should be able to think yes. critically, uh, creatively, uh, have every opportunity to achieve their opportunities in life. But th- what you're saying is like, there's a practical part of education, right? When you leave, how engaged you are. There's a, and I'm engaged you are in, in what happens in your community. Cause it's central. Cause otherwise, as, as uh, Senator Billy Vallum talked about, 50,000 people participate in the election. He has 215,000 uh, people who live in his district, right? So that's like, yeah. you know, that's, what is that? That's, that's 25%, right? So it's like, so our, you know, that's, so that, that's something that we need to be thinking, we need to rectify. So John, appreciate you, appreciate your time. Thanks for weighing in and uh, keep listening to Driving Home with Patty Vasquez. Every once in a while, she'll have this uh, uh, Polish guy named Dan uh, filling in for her. So please continue to listen. It's uh, thanks for your question. You have a good one. Thank you, sir. Have a good yeah. one. You too. Bye. So we're going to go to commercial uh, real quick. Again, please please note that we are sponsored by the Monaco Brewing Company, the Kirk Bankstead. Uh, thank you, Kirk, for all your support. Camp Kupagani, thank you for all that you, what you're doing. We appreciate the support of the program, driving it home with Patty Vasquez. After the break, we have Tom Vandenberg coming in. I can't wait to have him on. Uh, so uh, please stay tuned, listen in, uh, coming on a commercial.
This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. I am real, real excited uh, for about our next uh, host. No, nothing uh, against our previous uh, guest, uh, but this 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 uh, person has been uh, just a key central figure in my life and the life of so many others. And uh, Tom Vanderburk was uh, was the president CEO of UCAN, um, you know, for decades. And uh, the belief that youth who suffer trauma could become future leaders, and they. They, they help to build better lives for so many young people who've experienced poverty and violence and injustice. And he was at the helm of that for so long and made such a difference. And, and what Tom has been doing in his retirement is uh, he's led the effort uh, at GPAC, which is one of the first organizations we had in the state of Illinois, the first gun safety political action committee, which has been responsible, has helped to pass a series of uh, bills, important measures to keep our communities safe, our families safe, our kids safe, everything from gun dealer licensing for universal background checks, the ban on ghost guns, and the recent ban on assault weapons and high-capacity ammunition magazines. I met Tom when I was a young man. I still had like a, a few remaining hairs on the top of my head, Lady B, and I met Tom when his uh, after his son Tommy was shot and killed. And, you know, Tom, in his, uh, in his way, you know, he, in honoring Tommy's life, he became an advocate. Uh, but he looked after people like me. He started, uh, he'd been through an incredible amount of pain and, and, and suffering, but he's, he's such an incredible human being that he looked after a lot of people. And that's the way he honored Tommy. And that's the type of person he is. And it's just great to have him on the show. Tom, great to have you. How are you? I'm good, Dan. It's good to hear your voice. Yeah, it's good to hear you, Tom. Uh, thanks for coming on. I was, uh, you know, talking to, about talking to Lady B about you earlier, and uh, I just appreciate you and your leadership. So, tell me, you know, what uh, you know? I, I did that a little bit of the intro. Like, what what drove you to start to become an advocate for you know meaningful gun safety measures? What was the what was the the motivation? I touched on that, but uh, what was your main motivation? Well, the, the trigger, uh, really, Dan, that, that the loss of my son was trying to come to grips with how did this happen and why did it happen. Um, and a lot of the work that I did, you know, my day job, if you will, was working with troubled youth. And in many ways, I saw those troubled youth as people who could very well have been responsible for shooting my son. Mm. And I worked a lot of years working with this troubled population. And it, obviously, as, as you know, you get to know these young people and there's a lot of potential, a lot of hope and a lot of other things. So how did they get into this position that got my son into the position where he lost his life? And it was it really dawned on me that why did the young people have access to such a lethal weapon that you pull the trigger one time or twice and all of a sudden there's a life is totally ended. How is it so easy to acquire this kind of device? And I really took the study um, and, and getting a sense of this whole issue of gun violence, illegal guns in our uh, country and, and why did this happen and what could I do about it? So that really was the onset of my involvement 
on the issue of gun violence prevention because I saw the incredible disparity between us, us meaning the U.S., and other countries, other civilized, quote-unquote, civilized countries that just didn't have the same sort of problem. And I know they had problems with at-risk kids. I know London has uh, certainly juvenile issues and, and, and crime and all these other things. And that the deciding factor was guns and the lethality of guns and the ease at which young people uh, could get a hold of these guns that changed their lives and changed the lives that they were perpetrators for. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that. I think it's important for people to know and hear that perspective. So what what has been... Based on all that you've said, what has been the greatest obstacle that you've faced? Uh, obviously, there's a you know you, you face this major loss. You, you lose your son, Tommy, and you've uh, and you you're, you're you're working to make sure because you see in the in the in the young people that you're working with at UCAN, uh you see that they they could be um, they could be involved in. And an occurrence that may result in the death of a, another young person. So you see that, and you're like, look, I need to do more. We can do more. And uh, But what's been the biggest obstacle that you face? Because I can imagine that you've probably endured a lot of challenges uh, along the way. Well, I'll give you a little history, I guess. And, uh, you know, you and I were involved back in the early 90s, actually, and we really started to see some significant progress in the advocacy. Um, as a matter of fact, I became sort of, uh, Mayor Daly invited me to attend uh, Washington, D.C. when we were lobbying for the assault weapon ban and for the Brady Bill. So there was some really significant progress that happened in the 90s. Um, I just saw some statistics were probably at around death of 40, 48,000 people who have lost their lives last year. And when I was working on this, it was, we actually got down to about 29,000 mm-hmm. because of the implementation of the Brady Bill, because of the uh, assault weapon ban, there was really starting to see some significant progress. <clears throat> but what happened then is it really activated the National Rifle Association. They became really strong political advocates for a change in that mentality. Once the assault weapon ban uh, was no longer in play, manufacturers began to produce, we call them assault weapons, right? AR-15s, these assault rifles, uh, large-capacity magazines. All of that became a manufacturer's dream, and they started to produce these weapons of mass destruction at an incredible rate, which, by the way, they also invested a great deal of money politically to make sure that there was no resistance and no sensible gun laws that were able to pass. So that political strategy on the part of the NRA really changed the landscape. And uh, having been involved at the national level and many other organizations, it became clear to me that if we were going to be effective, 
we had to have the same unbelievable political strategy that would find a way to pass bill. And as you know better than anybody, the fact is you don't pass bills just by going up to your representatives and your senators and your uh, and saying, you know, it would be really nice if you do this because people want it done. If there's no reason to vote in a particular bill, they aren't necessarily going to do it. And the NRA have intimidated them for years now. And so what we did is we created an organization that had political viability, had political strength behind it. And so we then determined we're going to select some key laws that would make it much more difficult for individuals to get guns who shouldn't have them. Mm. So that was the process that we started. We became very selective on what bills we were going to work on, and then we put our political strategy together to make it happen. Let's, so let's do this, Tom. I won't, let's circle back to that. We're going to take a, a quick break uh, at, uh, right now, and we'll come back in like a minute or so, and uh, and we'll continue with our, our guest, Tom Vandenberg, uh, founder of GPAC and uh, the state's uh, main gun safety organization, uh, Political Action Committee uh, in Illinois. When you leave the office, catch up on what you missed on the way home with Patty Vasquez. Weekday afternoons from 5 to 7. Because we have so much to talk about every day. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez. And as you would imagine, that would mean that folks want to call in and join the conversation. Only at WCPT 820. Chicago's progressive talk. You're listening to WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. Uh, Dan Katowski back here filling in for Patty Vasquez on Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez with my special guest, Tom Vandenberg, uh, former president and CEO of UCAN and also the uh, the founder of uh, GPAC, the state's uh, primary gun violence prevention political action committee uh tom you were just talking about like how we've made progress and what that's involved you're talking about a political strategy that's involved in in passing legislation elaborate more on that like how why is you you talked about kind of countering what the nra was doing because they had something already in place and what if what is what have you been able to see accomplished through gpac and gpac's efforts I think we may need to call you back. It's not a good. Uh, we have a bad connection there, Tom. We'll call you right back. We'll call you right back. So we're going to call Tom right back. He was talking about the strategy that um, his organization, GPAC, is engaged in in order to pass meaningful gun safety reform. I know they were very instrumental over the past um, over the past several years to. Uh, help enact meaningful legislation that's going to keep our kids and families and first responders safe. And so um, I was just kind of touching base with him about that. Tom, you back on? Yes. Can yeah. you hear me now? Yes, I hear you now. I hear you now. So, okay. Um, okay. yeah, so we were just talking about, like, the political strategy that was involved in helping to get the legislation passed. Talk talk a little bit more about that and, and why that's so important to have in place. Well, I, I, it starts with um, really – finding where your legislators are around specific issues related to gun violence and gun violence prevention, okay? 
when you do campaigns, you want to know how they stand on the issues that are important to you. How do people feel about certification of gun dealers? How do they feel about uh, ghost guns? And how do they feel about assault weapons? So we put together a basic questionnaire that you ask representatives and senators before the election so that you can get a good sense of where they stand. And then you hold them accountable to the answers on that. You endorse candidates according to that, and you um, go against or, or fight against legislators who aren't supportive of your entity. You actually then have to make sure that you support those candidates, and you support them by helping get out the vote, by helping their campaign, all kinds of ways that is the process that we have in this state for changing laws and making a difference and and making sure that happens. So that political strategy has taken several years to accomplish. It just didn't happen overnight, but it was very precise and also very calculated about who we were going to support and then what kind and what type of bills we were going to put forward for legislative purposes. Then we found the right legislators to support or to head up a certain of these bills, and then we helped see that they got passed at the legislative uh, during the legislative process. So that's a key thing for people to, I think, understand who are, who are listening. I think this is the first time that uh, legislators or candidates had to publicly declare what their position was going to be on a measure that would protect uh, children and families and teachers and first responders and from uh, assault weapons that they literally have to declare and they would have to write down and say, yeah, I support a ban on assault weapons because uh, what you're suggesting when the bill would came up is like, no, you, you, you made a public uh, statement. You took a position on it and now we're going to hold you accountable. Whereas before, I think in, in com- being, you know, combating or battling against the NRA, they had already had these people make commitments. And for us, the side of the people trying to pass meaningful gun safety measures, it was about uh, it was about essentially just hoping that they would do the right thing. Right. And uh, um, uh, Dan, I, I would I would go to the legislator and tell my story and, you know, why it's important that we get this legislation passed. And, you know, some legislators would say to me, you know, face to face, hey, I, I really understand what you're doing. I'm actually even sympathetic to uh, what your cause is. And I, I would be happy to help pass certain legislation. But you know what? I can't vote that way because I've been threatened. OK, I've been threatened with being reelected. People, the NRA is going to come after me and they're paying attention to everything I do. And so that's really, the, you know, the enlightened part that, OK, the light goes off. Oh, I see. Uh, we have to have the same sort of power and ability to make this thing happen so that they vote the way we need them to. Because if they don't, they would fear that we would help them get unelected. So that's the changing point. That's the point that I think uh, made a difference when that realization hit, that it has to be a political strategy, not just, uh, oh, Senator, you know, it would be really nice for you to do this. Or, you know, I have sympathy for you. So uh, I, I, I'm going to going to uh, vote your way. But it, it really it isn't about that. Our political process 
is about influence. We have to have influence in, in elections, uh, political representatives and senators, <clears throat> excuse me, focus on one thing, and that's votes and money. They have to raise money, and they have to have votes in order to maintain their seats in the House and in the Senate. So we work on that as a very critical piece to the work that we do in passing legislation. So what's the uh, what's been the greatest? Uh, uh, so you talked about the obstacles. So what's what's your expectation uh, for the future as it relates to this issue? What do you see happening? What's uh, what's a measure you think that's going to save uh, more lives that you think that uh, and you hope that the public and legislators could get behind? Well, I, I think the the goal is not just to pass legislation in, in the pure sense, okay? I think law, oftentimes the people that are uh, supportive of, of guns, if you will, or the freedom to have guns and use them, I, I think they don't quite understand that we're really not anti-gun. We're not anti your ability to you know, have a gun even for self-defense or for hunting or for sport shooting. But we're against illegal guns getting into the hands of criminals, people with serious mental health problems, and people who are uh, there to do harm to others. That's our whole focus. So the first thing we did is we passed something called um, a gun dealer certification. There was all kinds of, uh, actually, this, the, the statistics showed that there were 40% of the guns used in crime came from Illinois dealers. And there is a system where gun dealers have to run background checks and they have to have proper identification or a license called a FOID card. But yet, a lot of these gun dealers. There was a lot of crime guns coming out of these various, I'll call them bad gun dealers, to, uh, through straw purchase and other means. And the ATF, which is the uh, federal body, which was supposed to look at gun dealers, just wasn't doing their job. So what we did is we passed a bill, uh, a gun dealer certification that allowed local uh, enforcement, the sheriff, the Illinois State Police, to investigate these gun dealers that were responsible for excessive straw purchasing so that they then would be called on the carpet and could even close these gun dealers for inappropriate behavior on their part. We had higher expectations for people who worked in their um, gun dealers that they had to pass their own inspection. They had to be fingerprinted. So it raise the bar on the flow of illegal guns, preventing illegal guns. And wasn't also part of the problem that federally there wasn't uh, there wasn't enough resources in, in the in in the gun lobby and their industry were instrumental in preventing ATF to have resources to monitor uh, gun dealers and, and gun dealers in our state were visited like once every three years. And now through this legislation that GPEC got behind and that was uh, so important, Senator Harmon sponsored that it was now there's resource to actually monitor and enforce these laws and prevent this straw purchasing and this trafficking from happening. It also made gun dealers put uh, certain checks in place like mm-hmm. cameras so that you could find out who those people who were coming in 
and we're responsible for per- straw purchasing. So in that process, we eliminated a lot of gun dealers just because they couldn't live up to that standard and realized that they were going to be in trouble. So it heightened the process of gun dealers and it, it made it more legitimate. So that was one of the first pieces of legislation that we did. And in the past, uh, there was always this idea that, oh, we got all this legislation and uh, there's a fact is uh, Illinois really had not passed any sensible gun legislation. Actually, this bill, this particular bill that was sponsored by Senator Harmon, this bill was uh, in the hopper for like 16 years before it was passed. We said, this is our one focus. We're not going to throw out a bunch of other bills that could confuse legislators. We said, let's work on one particular bill at a time that we think is going to make a difference. Yeah, yeah, and that's important. That's important. So you're, you're saying, you know, you know, what do we do more, need to do more of in the future? And what you're pointing out, it's not just legislation. It could be the fact that we have these measures that we're starting, uh, that we've put in place, and we need to make sure they're being enforced uh, so they have the greatest amount of strength and teeth to it. And so what are the other things that you see on the rise? I know there's been some conversation centered around better provisions for uh, protections, uh, for uh, you know, people who may be a threat to themselves or somebody else, but also about liability centered around gun, manuf- gun manufacturers or, or just general licensing of firearms. I know that's a, I've heard you talk, that's a passion of yours. Why, why do you think it's so important that we license firearms? Well, I mean, you know, the, the simple version that I think best for people to understand is uh, automobiles, uh, can be, I suppose, lethal if you don't have a driver who knows how to drive, right? So right. what do you do? You have restrictions on adolescents, for instance. They can't, you know, when they turn 16, they can't just uh, have a bunch of their buddies uh, in the car and drive anywhere they want. There is restrictions on licensing. So in order to get a, a license, you have to pass a, a rigorous test to make sure that you're capable and you're a safe driver. Then the other thing is that is important is, you know, uh, cars are registered so that criminals can't just take a car, go to another state, provide something, get parked, and the registration system is just something we're used to in uh, in this country around certain Items uh, like an automobile. And so all we're saying is have something very similar to guns, having responsible ownership. I'm a responsible driver. I got a license. I have to renew it. Now that I turn 75, I find out I have to get tested every two years <laughs> just because, you know, you get a little older, you get a little agile, you know, a little, little uh, not, not equipped anymore. So, you know, you, you got to have those restrictions. And can I get all upset about it? Sure. But yet and still, if I don't have the skills anymore, I shouldn't be out there driving because it's dangerous. Right. So that's right. the kind of thing that we're looking at in, in terms of a sensible gun legislation. What we were able to also do as we improved the FOID card, which is basically a license to purchase, uh, private sales are a part of that. So 
if I have a gun and uh, you're a friend of mine, I can't go to your house and say, you want to buy this gun. I have to make sure that I take you to a gun dealer so that then you can pass a background check. And so that there's a record of that sale. Right. Why is that important? Because the Chicago police told us that the clearance rate would improve by 50% if we could have a better sense of where these guns came from. Right. So that it clamps down on the illegal gun market. So that's a significant piece of legislation also. And uh, now, um, I don't know the percentage, but a very high percentage of people who apply for FOIA cards, if they want to get them right away, have to be fingerprinted as well. So that's a real, real positive thing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So let's uh, let's do this. Like we're we're coming up on uh, another commercial. Let's circle back in a second and we'll have you kind of wrap up with some uh, with some final words. Okay, Tom. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, thanks. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. Dan Katowski back here for um, Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez with my special guest, Tom Vandenberg, the, the uh, founder of GPAC, uh, the state's main gun violence prevention political action committee as well as tom was the president ceo of uh you can uh organization that believed that youth who suffer trauma could be future leaders for decades and now he's back in um he's, uh, on the show and he's uh just talking about some of the things that they've been wor- they're working on with gpac so what's what you, you talked about some of the other measures that uh, the concern we have about, you know, we got about seven minutes to go before the end, Tom. So what, what are the other things? And then what do you tell people who who are thinking about getting involved and, and they haven't really decided and they've been kind of sitting on the fence and they're like, well, I don't know. You know, this is I don't know what organization to support. You know, a couple of things. You just want to wrap up what you were talking about before. But then uh, how do we encourage people to get more involved in, in GPAC? And what would you what would you say to them for those, those folks who are kind of on the fence in terms of making a decision to to be a part of, uh, of an effort like this? Well, for sure. Uh, look up our um, our website, GPAC Illinois. It's easy to find. Uh, you can find out what we have accomplished, what we're doing, what our plans are. Uh, certainly we love donations because of course it's a, it's a group that depends upon support, support of, uh, candidates, et cetera. So donation is extremely important in this point period, but also get a better understanding of who your legislators, legislative person is. Do you know your representative? Mm-hmm. Do you have access to, do, 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 do can you call them up? Who's your senator? You get you get one senator, and, and each senate district has two representatives. Who's your representative? Mm-hmm. Who's your senator? And who are these people that are even on the local level? Uh, you have to get involved in the political process that happened in your municipalities, in your county, and then at the state and local level. Because I do think we've taken for granted the hard work that they do and we just assume oh yeah i voted for that person then he knows what he's doing representatives and senators depend upon your feedback and they listen to who their constituent is they know 
that you live in their district and will vote according to what they say. So that's really important to understand who your local power source is. Mm-hmm. That's what a democracy is about, right? Getting involved at the local level, because I don't remember who said it, but all politics is local. It starts out that way. Change does not happen at the national level. Frankly, I worked at the national level trying to make sensible gun laws go through, and it just it, it isn't possible if it isn't done at the local level. Mm. So I think that's one of the very important things that people have to recognize how important their representatives and their senators are. These are hardworking people that don't give enough, get enough credit as far as I'm concerned, and they'd love to hear from you. They'd love to hear what you have to say, and they want to know what you think and why you'll continue to vote for them. So at the local level, politics is extremely important. Yeah, that's a, well said. That's important. And, and you know, we had uh, Senator Vili Vallum on earlier, and he was saying, you know, I I need to hear from people. I need to hear from people I, that, that I represent. I want to hear about their concerns. I want to know what matters to them. Because if people don't get engaged uh, with uh, the, the process of making laws, then uh, their laws are made without their input. And uh, and they don't reflect their concerns. So, yeah, well stated and 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 well put, Tom. And then and then in terms of uh, people getting engaged and reach out, they can get done. Uh, it's gpac uh, dot uh, dot com on the website. Uh, and the best reach G-Pack out to people. GPACIllinois.com. Yep. GPACIllinois.com. And people can participate that way. And uh, really appreciate your uh, your coming on the show, Tom. And uh, you know, as I said at the beginning. You know, I, through the course of, of my life, we've known each other since 1992, uh, which is about 30 years. And, and, and thankfully, you haven't aged at all in the process. Well, sadly, I have. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey Dan, what, what you don't understand and appreciate, I don't know if you're listening to audience, appreciate what you've done in this area, in this movement. I, I'm the founder because, you know, after I retired, I spent a lot of time with this and a lot of time fundraising. But it's, you know, your inspiration and your ideas. So I like to call you the co-founder. Dan, <laughs> yeah, you know? right. so I, I think the public, the general public needs to know <laughs> yeah, how significant of a leader you yeah. have in this field, in this area. So, Just washing feet. Know, not, Just washing feet, not, right? Not, not only, your, not only your, your leadership as a senator, but uh, with your Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence years ago, you started the momentum in Illinois, so... We can't forget the great work you've done. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it, Tom, and grateful for you and your leadership and your continued efforts to make our state a better, safer place for 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 our kids and families and our neighbors and community. And and uh, so much gratitude to you. Appreciation. That really grateful that you're on the show. I look forward to seeing you soon, Tom. So thanks again. Appreciate it. Peace and peace and love to your audience. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, uh, it was great to hear uh, from Tom. That is anybody. I don't know if it, we've been, the phone lines are open for the next few minutes here. 773-763-9278. 773-763-9278. We had some great guests here today, right, Lady B? You know, we had uh, uh, Daniel Biss, the Mayor Evanson. We had Ron Villivalum, the senator from the 8th District in Illinois. We had Tom Vandenberg from GPAC. 
talking about a range of issues, you know, paid family uh, leave. It's talking about uh, reparations, talking about gun violence prevention. There's a whole host of issues out there. The most important thing to note, the most important thing to note that it, always, always, it comes back to every single conversation is that people need to get involved. They need to step up and stand up for issues that matter uh, for people who are impacted uh, to be that voice. And to, for, for those who don't have access uh, to the same type of resources and, and may not have that same type of influence, but to really step up and stand up and speak out. Uh, you know, uh, there's that great line that Dr. King says, our, um, our, our lives begin to matter when we're no longer silent about things that matter. I think that's a phrase. I'm paraphrasing it. Don't be silent about things that matter. You know, don't be silent about things that matter. Um, speak up, get involved, get engaged. Uh, it's so essential. And so we've heard from a few people today who've really, really helped to pass policy in the state of Illinois, ensured that we have a better life, a better existence, and that, you know, when people talk, there's oftentimes there there there's a lot of um, concern out there, and there's uh, doubts, and they're like, well, I really don't like the way our country's going. I have a lot of hope, and it's hope that's grounded in actual evidence that there are a lot of good people, because people are good for the most part. People are making a difference. People are engaged. We have excellent public service servants who make a difference each and every day, and are doing it for the right reasons. So, with you know, five seconds to go, coming up on two, three. It's great to have you all and to be with you. And thanks so much for being on the Driving Home with Pat Vasquez show. This is Dan Gatowski signing off.